the Lord gives me himself. So before we open the word and we think of giving ourselves to one another in nurture, let's take a moment and pray to the one who has given us himself. Let's go one more time to the throne of grace. O living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ever-flowing fountain of all goodness and life and love and truth, you have given us yourself. Make us like that tenth leper this morning. Fill us and cause us to be overflowing with gratitude. And out of the riches of our union with Jesus Christ, help us to look at one another with love, and tenderness and not suspicion and affection and to give ourselves in nurture to one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Four days. Ninety-six hours. Where was she? Some of you might have read or heard this week that a maintenance worker at a mall in our state had been missing for four days. A lady, I think in her early 70s. She was eventually found in a locked closet at a mall in our state. Her family wondered why She was dead. Why did no one look? Why did no one ask, where was she? How could someone be out of sight and out of sound for 96 hours and no one notice? As we think this morning, as we come to a third message in the series on our core truths or core commitments as a church. I asked Josh to read these three texts, two from John and then Ephesians 4, to help lay a foundation for the way we'll think about this single word of nurture. You'll notice the, the title of my message is A Call to Nurture, or better is How We Gather, colon, A Call to Nurture. And if you're not used to our new bulletin, so appreciate Hannah Rice and Josh Marie Furson working on this together. On the back, you now have room to take notes. All right? So there, tip for you note takers. 
It was Edmund Clowney that wrote this. The church is called to serve God in three distinct ways. First, the church serves God directly in worship. Second, the church is called to serve the saints or one another in nurture. And then third, the church is called to serve the world in witness or in mission. Several weeks ago, the message was why we gather, and we spoke of the gospel as front and center, right? If there's no gospel, if as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, the Lord Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then we, of all people, are most to be pitied. But praise God, he was And so even like the godly woman in Proverbs 31 who may smile at the future, if we are those for whom God has given himself, we have hope. And so why we gather is because the gospel is front and center. When we gather, we looked at, I think it was last two weeks ago, We gather for white-hot worship, and as John Piper says, the reason missions exist is because worship does not, but then today is how we gather. It's a call to nurture. As we come together, and two weeks ago, we spoke of to distinguish, we're not calling this worship as though nothing else is. And Two weeks ago, we looked at the distinction between generic worship generally or generic worship versus specific that all of life is to be lived as this sacrificial offering of all that we are our time our words what we think the actions of our hands what our eyes look at where our feet go the purposes and intentions of our heart, our daily calling, the rhythms of the week are to be given for the glory of God, something akin to what Paul writes to the Corinthians, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But then there is corporate worship or gathered worship, which we do on the Lord's Day. And we looked at those basic elements of the word, whether it's spoken, whether it's read, preached, used in a benediction, sung in song. It's the time of prayer. It's why we have a legitimate pastoral prayer, what the Puritans called the long prayer. It's not simply, we'll we'll just say a little blessing or say grace, but we pray as a sense of the people of God gathered together to lift up our hearts to him. And then, then we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We baptize new believers. We observe communion or the Lord's Supper. But this morning as we come not so much vertical with worship, but this idea of we are called to serve one another in nurture. I want to give you some preliminary thoughts before we look at these three passages, and I'll structure. So four brief preliminaries, and, and I, you can take notes, but I really just want you to think with me 
as I express these. Number one is this. Our union with or to Christ is the basis for our unity with one another. Our union with or to Christ is the basis for our unity with one another. That's why it's very easy for me to say, I can love you because he has first loved me. And out of the riches, out of the fullness, out of the well, the fountain of that love, I may love you. Our union with Christ is the basis for our unity with one another. Secondly, there's no true unity with one another apart from a vital union with Christ. Now, I might be your friend because you pull for Clemson and I'm a Clemson grad and I'm a Clemson fan, but there's no real unity based on that. The real unity that the Bible speaks of, the spirit-given unity, is because we're united by faith with Jesus Christ. There's a third preliminary that I want to give you, and that's this. Union with Christ does not equal vital unity with one another. You may be here, and she may be there. You may both by faith be united to Christ, but functionally, there's no living, vital expression of that unity. And later, we're going to look at how we do that in seven simple kind of strategies. All right, But union with Christ does not equal vital uni- unity with one another. No different than two people may be married and living in one house, two people, one house, in one major thing, conflict between them. They're united in marriage, but they're not expressing a unity based on love in that moment. And then here's the fourth thing. And that is that it is unthinkable that we who are united to Christ by faith would not care about our unity with his body. It's unthinkable. Yeah, it would literally be like tomorrow morning, you wake up and the sun is rising to the west, and tomorrow night, the sun is setting to the east. That's unthinkable. And it's unthinkable that we would remain stuck in neutral in in our heart, in our affection for one another, those of us who are united by faith to Jesus Christ in the way we regard one another. Now, I want us to see there's three points in this sermon. I'm going to lay out, we're going to take John 13, John 17, and Ephesians 4, And I'll give this to you initially, and then I'll repeat it if you're taking notes. A call to nurture is seen first in Jesus' new commandment. All right, we're going to shorten this. A call to nurture is seen first in Jesus' new commandment. That's John 13. Secondly, we see a call to nurture is seen in Jesus' final prayer in John 17, in what as Josh described or identified as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And then finally, we'll see a call to nurture is seen in Paul's 
surprising manifesto in Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. So, if you will, turn briefly to John 13, page 900, if you've got a pew Bible. Love, biblically, of course, is not a new concept, right? Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus, I think, 19 or 18, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But as the Lord Jesus is staring down the hour of his agony with this prologue, this introduction, now is the Son of Man glorified, John 13, 31, and God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him That is, Jesus in himself and glorify him immediately or at once, now. And he says, look, there's something you cannot do, and that is now go where I'm going. But there's something that you must do, and that is to love. To love one another. Here it is with a new standard. That's the newness of it. It's fresh in its expression. He says, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And there's a parallel with John 13 and John 17 with Jesus' final prayer. The new commandment, the result of this type of love, this type of sacrificial service-oriented and sanctifying love shouts out to the world, these are my disciples, okay? They'll know you're my disciples, contingent on this one thing, love. Now, if you're like me, and we've talked about this, this is something I, I think I've woven in when I've preached, I think we tend to think of the opposite of love as hate, But far more frequent than feeling overt hate, hot hate toward another person, is just indifference. I just don't care. Like, you don't don't look at someone and say to their face, I hate you. But in our hearts, we tend to just be indifferent. You don't matter. I'm done with you. I don't have time with you. But the Lord Jesus in this new commandment says that the declaration that his disciples are his to the world is on the back of Jesus' disciples bent with basin and towel in sacrificial, sanctifying service to one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. 
From Ephesians 5, that's the standard for Christian to Christian. From Ephesians 5, that's the standard for husband to wife. But before there was Ephesians 5, there was the Lord Jesus. And the basin wasn't even dry. The towel probably hadn't even yet been wrung out. The disciples' feet were probably still a little moist. He just modeled for them what nurture looked like. A basin and a towel. There's not only Jesus' new commandment, there's his final prayer. Turn just a few pages to John 17, page 903. And essentially, John 17 is what we call Jesus' final or high priestly prayer. So we see that a call to nurture is not only seen in Jesus' new commandment, but also in his final prayer. This is so stunning that I'm not sure we can take it in. It's like something so bright, there are no sunglasses that would be sufficient for you to take it in. Observe this with me just for a moment. He's saying, this is Jesus with requests to his Father. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for the ones, and he's thinking future, who believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so John 17 pairs with John 13, a new commandment with a final prayer, a new commandment that by this expression of knee-bent, foot-washing love, that humble, the world would know that those, those are Jesus' disciples. Look how they love one another. And then Jesus is saying by their unity, and you see this word one, like we find six or seven times in Ephesians 4. And is it possible? Is it possible that the Son of God is praying that you and you and I and him and he and him and she and her and I don't, together that we should have such a oneness, such an indivisible union that it's as near and tight and singular and one as God himself? As one God, three persons, he does. He prays that for us. That's why it's unthinkable that those of us who say we are Christ's should not be able to say with equal certainty that I am yours. And you are mine in the sense. We are blood-bought 
brothers in Jesus Christ. And so age, and so gender, and so ethnicity, and so income, and so nationality, and so intelligence, and so giftedness, are of no account. And so that the lowest, most humble person that would ever walk in these doors and sit here should be as deeply loved in the name of Jesus as the most noble, the most mighty, the most powerful. It's Jesus that's praying that we might be one in the same way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. Now look at verse 22 and think about this. If I said to you, is God's glory infinite, what would you say? I don't think any of you would shake your heads no. Would you say there's a mystery to the glory of God? I think you would say yes. Now look at verse 22 in the prayer, the final prayer of our Lord Jesus. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, I want this side for a moment of the sanctuary to look this way and this side to look. Just look. Look, you guys look to your left. You all look to your right. Do you know as you look at each other when you see the people of God that you are looking at a group of people to whom Jesus has given glory, he says, similarly to the way the Father gave glory to him for the purpose, not that you could simply look at each other, but that you might be one. You might be one. This call to nurture is seen in Jesus' new commandment. This call to nurture is seen in his final word, in his final prayer here. But it's also thirdly seen in Paul's surprising manifesto. Turn to Ephesians 4. I think it's very helpful when you take the book of Ephesians and you understand the first three chapters, we might say, are doctrinal. The next three, four through six, are application. We can say some theologian, yeah, and I think that's good enough for the moment. This is what God has done in Christ. This is our response to all that God has done in Christ, all that he's accomplished. And he, then he applies 
all that God has done. Most, many of you are familiar with that. So what I want you to notice there is glory. Notice glory that he prays in 14 through 19. He prays, Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus, that it this, in a way that is commensurate with the riches of God's glory, and we spoke of God's glory in infinite terms, mysterious terms, he said, so the Ephesian believers would be strengthened with power by God's Spirit in their be- inner being so that by faith Christ would dwell in their hearts and they, he says, being rooted and grounded in love, not the love, I don't think the object here is our love for others or our love for God, but his for us, that's the root of what he's done for us in Christ, the one in whom we have every spiritual blessing, chapter one, verse three. He says, so that you might have strength as a body with all the saints, not simply individually, but you would be strengthened with power in your inner being by the help of the Spirit, by faith, rooted in love, so that as a body, you might know the fourfold dimension, you might comprehend and know the fourfold dimension of the love of Christ. Something he says surpasses knowledge and that then you would be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now then look, he has this like doxological expression here. Verses 20 and 21 at the end of chapter 3. And he says, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then he transitions with this word, I therefore, with this expression. And though he's in prison, he's spilling out with this manifesto, a very surprising manifesto for life in the body and it makes sense that he should be expressing this surprising on one level but not in another because he's already talked about us comprehending with all the saints the love of Christ he's spoken of the glory in the church he's saying to him be glory in the church and now he's going to show us how that glory in the church is expressed And this makes sense after having just looked at John 17 and verse 22, that the Son should pray to the Father and say, the glory that you gave me I've given to them for this purpose that they might be one. So that we have this glory-based unity. And so Paul says this, his first of many times that he'll say, walk this way. He'll say, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And I think it's so important. We often think of the church simply as the called out ones. 
We're the ones that were dead. We're the ones that were in darkness. We're the ones in bondage to sin. And now God has brought us out into his marvelous light. But I think Edmund Clowney helps us take one step further to understand that we're more as the church than simply the called out ones. We're the called together ones. We're the called together ones. And so we cannot stay in perpetually and terminally casual relationships and satisfied to not know, to not love, to not serve, to not encourage, to not be accountable to, to not be sharpened by, to not be willing to forgive and be forgiven by each other. And so he says, look, express this fruit of the Spirit. The first implication of the whole plan of redemption, Ephesians 1 through 3, is he takes all this, this, all this glory of God's plan of redemption and he says, now look, start with these three words, humility, gentleness, and patience. And not just like a quarter of a teaspoon, but all of it. I want you to think about this for a moment. I come to your house, it's two days before Thanksgiving, and you say you're going to bake. Like you're going to bake. And so you get out the sugar and the flour and the brown sugar and all the butter in the refrigerator, and you don't measure anything. You just dump all of it into this big bowl. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're like, I was inspired to cook. I was inspired to bake. By this Ephesians 4 path. You're just going to take all of it. You're not going to measure. So you give. He says you walk with unmeasured humility and gentleness and patience. That's how you do it. And you bear with one another in love. Do you know what it's like? Have you ever just put up with another person, but you didn't have a really good attitude? You just kept your mouth shut? You didn't like them? You couldn't wait till you didn't have to deal with them? But that's not the same as bearing with one another in love. If you know, this Christian life is about the affections of our heart. It's not surprising That that great Shema of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, God is saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart. To have that type of response to one another. I want to confess something to you. A week ago, Sunday, at the end of the service, a brother was trying to speak to me, and I was impatient. I was rude. I was dismissive. And I got up to Indiana. I got an email from him. And I had heard him. I would heard him. And he just laid it out. He was right. 100%. Like, I, he was just 100%. There was nothing to say, but man, I'm so sorry. I immediately wrote him. And we got together yesterday. But we sat in my office and 30 minutes, face to face, two feet apart. 
Um, I'm telling you this because he bore with me in love. He didn't get mad at me. He didn't yell at me. He wrote me and he said, let's get together. He said, I don't want this between us. Let's talk. So we talked, we shared, and we prayed. He bore with me in love. And that bearing with me in love, in that case, didn't mean not speaking about it. Sometimes we just absorb. But sometimes it's more loving to confront, especially if we know that it'd be like in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, hey, before you go put your offering right there, you need to settle that. And that brother loved me. He did that with humility and gentleness and patience. He bore with me in love. He promoted the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace and how he did that. Look for a moment, and then look at the rest of that section, Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. The idea of oneness. There's one body. There's one spirit. Paul says, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's why one of the things that we seek to do as elders is to promote the unity, not at the expense of truth, but promote the unity of the body consistent with truth. And that's, so we should be promoting positively truth, the truth of the gospel, and keeping eyes out for things that would divide us, but naturally would be factions that are not in line with the gospel. Because there is, Paul says, one body. There's one spirit. He says, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who's over all and through all and in all. Now look at verse 7 for a moment. After all those ones, the oneness of our faith, the oneness of our life together in Christ, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so as we now come to seven points, seven strategies on how we can nurture one another, recognize this, are you Christ? Then you've received, you have God-given gifts and graces that the body of Christ needs. And if you're not exercising those, if you've hidden them under a bushel, if you're telling yourself it doesn't matter, my contribution is so small, it doesn't matter, you're mistaken. Because he said, he said, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, I want to leave us with seven quick words of how we may nurture one another in the body of Christ. And I'm going to give you a symbol which each, with, each, with each of these, kind of a way to think of them. Seven ways that we may nurture one another in the body of Christ, the way we may live out those 51 one another's in the New Testament. Number one is to know one another. It's really difficult to nurture another person who is entirely unknown to us. Let me ask you this. Do you ask questions of others? Or do you only talk about you? 
Do you learn, do you retain and use others' names? Do you learn their stories, their passions, their unfulfilled desires, their unanswered prayers, their gifts? Here's the symbol. It's an index card. Some of you know I have an index card in my office on virtually everyone in this church only because I don't trust my memory for what I need to know. I just pass, it's my pastoral notes. If I have lunch with you on a day, it's in there. If I visited you, if you called me about a, something that's a particular challenge or prayer request, it's in there. I know when it took place. If your baby was born, it's in there. If I know your anniversary, I write it down and your birthday, all that. That's, that's the basic building blocks of knowing. It's not, you can know about someone without knowing them, but rarely do you really know someone without knowing some things about them. So the low-hanging fruit is knowing about and then moving up, right? There's a second thing, and that's love. The way we'll nurture one another is in the body of Christ is to love. You know, love is normally in the verb form in the New Testament, rarely a noun. When Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, love is this, love is that, those are verbal forms. Those aren't, love is not passive, it's active. James says it's the royal law. It's to seek the highest good of another person in every dimension of their lives. Parents, the fact that your kid's don't express affection for you in any given moment is not a sign that you're not loving them well. Sometimes if you're loving your children well, they're not happy with mom and dad for giving consequences to their behavior. Let's aim. Let's aim to do one another good. And sometimes that means that we might need to say no, not a step further. What's the ultimate symbol of love? See who can guess the cross. So first, no. Second is love. Not feeling, but this idea of doing, not, it's, it's more than the affections of the heart. It's, it's a commitment. It's an act of commitment to go, do good for one another that involves sacrifice, involves service. Here's a third thing, and that's the idea of drawing near. Nearness and not distance is the goal. When we're at the GA this week, one thing I notice about our African brothers, if you go talk to an African brother as a man, they all want to sit right next to you, like right next, thigh to thigh, okay? No problem. That's cultural. Yeah. Drawing near. Nearness is the goal. And sometimes, like, some of you will ask me how I'm doing, and I'll tell you what I've been doing. And you need to just cry foul on that. You know the distinction. We need to learn how to ask how one another's doing, to, to ex- express care that way, and then patiently listen for that, to draw near, to not be satisfied with these terminally casual relationships It's not God's design for his body to be like that. Oneness and nearness are the goal. And let me give you a symbol. How about two pieces of super sticky tape 
that are stuck to each other and you know you can't pull them apart without tearing the tape. That type of nearness. Yeah. And guys, I get this. Sometimes I might come home and Cheryl's be like, how's your day? Fine. Fine. It's good. It's a good day. But she's longing for me to draw near and to open the door of my heart. And sometimes if I tell her I'm fine, but my face is communicating I'm not fine, she throws a penalty flag at me in that moment. She should. Okay. And so to bring alignment in the way we love in drawing near to one another. Yeah. In appropriate ways to acknowledge our struggles, our sins, God's goodness in that. That he's given him to ourselves, to, to, our, to us. A fourth, not only know one another, not only love one another, not just draw one another, but to serve one another in practical ways. To take of our time, our treasure, and talent and give. And I just want to commend our church. Don't feel scolded this morning. I'm a Barnab- I want to be a Barnabas to you this morning. I'm so encouraged. I know our elders are so encouraged by how you love one another. You excel. Excel more. But serve. Take up a basin and a towel. Yeah. Look. You know. Don't be that person that, that's always looking for jobs that are equal to your talent. But be the person that's given a job and says, oh God, give me the grace, the strength, and the talent and faithfulness to be equal to the job you gave me. You, do, you see the distinction, that idea of serving even in the, the most simple ways. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's a fourth thing, and that is sharpen. Iron sharpens iron. We read in Proverbs 27, 17. And one man sharpens another. I have a question. Who is really growing and maturing as a result of your influence, as a result of living life with you in life on life? Who is, and then conversely, who is helping you grow and reach full maturity in Christ? If you are struggling to put, put names in those slots, I want you to, to just begin. Get your eyes up and out and ask, Lord, who can I sharpen? Who can I ask to help sharpen me? And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Without the firmness, the strength, the resistance that one piece of iron provides to the other, there's no sharpening, right? You can't sharpen a knife on a piece of wet linguine, all right? There's no other way to look at it, all right? How about encourage? Here's the symbol. It's just two people side by side. I always love those bumper stickers when they like mom, dad, four kids, two dogs, and a cat, and everybody's side by side. Maybe someone need, here needs to make a bumper sticker of a family and everyone's in a circle, but I like that they're side by side. And here's the idea. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Do you encourage others, like proactively? Do you ever say, man, I see, I just see you growing in Christ. 
I so appreciate how you serve here. Thanks for being faithful in that. Do you build others up with words? Do you, do you understand the capital that words have? Paul says in Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. To be silent. If we're going to be a nurturing church family, silence isn't going to cut it. We got to love one another with words. Yeah. And there's a final thing. Not only do we know, love, draw near, serve, sharpen, and encourage, we'll need to forgive. As we grow as a church and we've added a number of members and people even from different states, it's, it's easy to, to accent and highlight our differences and as we're near, as we interact in the body of Christ, it's so very easy, it's so, it's so easy to be unforgiving, to bear grudges, to be offended. Yeah. Sometimes I like to say, you know, that offends me, and I'm just joking. It really doesn't. But we're in an age where we're easily hurt and offended. But I think we need to recognize that there are times when there are real hurts. There are real slights. And so as we see in Ephesians 4, Paul right out of the gate says that we bring, I don't know if you noticed this, he says, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to with which you've been called. And then he gives these three words that are in that realm, the same area code as the fruit of the Spirit, humility and gentleness and patience. And the immediate application is bearing with one another in love. And then if you look at the end of the chapter, look how Paul finishes Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Have you ever thought that real unity, real unity is not expressed simply in the absence of conflict? but really even in the tenderness of forgiveness. When we bumped up into each other, where we really have hurt each other, and it's just so awkward, but we got to come. It's like my brother did. He just wrote me an email. He didn't wait. He says, I have a problem with how you responded to me. He was right. He, He loved me. He forgave me, by the way. And I'm sorry I didn't cut it. Brothers, we men are not good at this. Like, I'm sorry. No. If we can bring to, to one another this spirit of forgive me. I was wrong. I sinned against you and I sinned against God. And I realized in what I did, I not only sinned against him, but in sinning against you, I've caused this hurt this consequence and I want to make it right what do I need to do you tell me 
And then will you pray for me so that I don't repeat that? Will you help me? And then on the other end, and I recognize as we walk through this as a church, not everyone grew up in homes where they saw reconciliation modeled very well. In fact, I dare say many of us didn't see it modeled especially well. But to say, hey, someone says, man, I was wrong, forgive me. And you, like, there's, of course, forgiven. I won't bring it up. It's behind us. I love you. I see God at work in you. God will use this for our good. And using words to express that type of care and that type of tenderness. I want to close with an illustration from Tim Keller about this. Some of you know Tim Keller and his article on serving one another through reconciliation and forgiveness. He talks about in your home you have this beautiful coffee cup. In fact, some of you know I have one that I really love. If you're ever over, you can drink from it. From Suzhou, China. And maybe one of you one day will break my coffee cup. Maybe I'll break it. It'll be an accident. It'll be unplanned. And Tim Keller says, when someone sins against us, in effect, they've created a liability. They've caused us to incur a loss. And there's two choices. They break your coffee cup. I'm hoping this doesn't happen, but it could. You guys will beat me up with this sermon, rightly so. There's two options in that moment. And this is illustrating forgiveness. Someone will pay for that coffee cup, and there's only three possible ways. Either I just decide to live without the coffee cup, or I come up and I say, you get my replacement. You buy it. There it is in 110 pieces on the floor. You pay for it. Give me the money for it or you go find it. But there's a third. As I say, don't worry about it. I got it. I'll go buy a replacement. I can absorb it in one of two ways. I can live without it and not hold you to account. Or I can go and replace it. That type of dealing with one another where we don't grind each other down but express this type of kindness, this tenderheartedness, this forgiving is reflective of the way God has dealt with us. There's a call to nurture we've seen this morning in a new commandment. There's a call to nurture in Jesus' final prayer and there's a call to nurture we see in Paul's very surprising manifesto that he wants us, he wants us as a united body who are loving one another to be known as his disciples, to declare to the world that Christ is worthy, he's desirable to know him who is the most lovely of all, is the greatest thing in life. We do that as we care for one another. God help us to do that this day. Amen.